Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. Anya, what did we just watch? <laughs> we just watched Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon. That, of course, was a movie starring Bathel Rathbone and Nigel Bruce that was made all the way back in 1943. Heck yeah. Which the astute uh, students of history among us might recall it was a, the height of the Second World War. Uh, I don't know about you. I always find it interesting when there is a a long-running pop culture character that then gets reinterpreted or altered even in little ways by different eras. Uh, I find it interesting to see how each the people of each different time period see the character and what it reveals about them. And so for me, it was interesting to see how in England and the United States in the middle of the Second World War try to recast and uh, finesse 
Sherlock Holmes to make him fit the particular needs of that time. Basically a protector of their country, England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was pretty interesting. I mean, this is a very loosely ad- adapted version of The Adventure of the Dancing Men, which is a canonical uh, Conan Doyle story uh, starring Sherlock Holmes, but it, it takes, uh, let's say, uh, all, all of the liberties with, with that sort of pre- basic premise of dealing with a, uh, a a coded message involving stick figures of uh, disco, you know, doing the hustle little dancing men. <laughs> And most of the original stories are about things like uh, bank robberies or a fella trying to kill a lady with a snake. As one does. (laughs) And this story uh, has slightly higher stakes, does it not? Yeah, basically the future of England and the outcome of World War II. So no pressure on Sherlock Holmes for this one. (laughs) Well, shall we get into it? Yeah, let's dive into it. So we open up in quaint picturesque Switzerland um, with the title card informing us that's where we are as we pan onto this you know set that's supposed to be Switzerland and it opens up in a rather odd establishment wouldn't you say Kevin <laughs> but kind of the place where we probably would hang out in real life yeah there, there's it's not clear what it is there's people in there eating and even drinking so it could be like a bar or a restaurant there's also people in there reading newspapers that are mounted on sticks so it looks a little bit like it was a library and maybe it's like kind of kramer books in dc kramer books and afterwards that's a fun place and also uh but i think you're missing out on one very key facet of this oh yes indeed i am why don't okay, you well, enlighten me? I'll tell you. Xylophone drum roll, please. There's tons of, there's a, there's a guy playing a xylophone. He looks very silly. And I would just, I don't want to be offensive if that's a common thing in Switzerland. I kind of doubt it is. But yeah, they got someone dressed up in what's, I guess, their idea of traditional Swiss gar banging on a xylophone in the middle of this library bar. So it looks like a quirky, fun place to be. Uh, and, uh, Sherlock Holmes is there. Yeah. Although he is wearing uh, a comically inept disguise. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been great if one of the extras had walked up on like Basil Rathbone. Like, stop, I'm working. <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like <laughs> Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes by way of like some very half-assed Einstein cosplay. And he's trying to sell some Nazis, some books in this library tavern. And he's also doing a very bad accent. Just just the worst. Just, yeah. And also, I think we should note that in the midst of his uh, conversation with these two people at this mysterious establishment, he's also shit-talking himself. He says, oh, I hear there's some uh, amateur coming over here named a Holmes, and you better watch out for him. He's pretty clever. <laughs> I hear he's really handsome. <laughs> Great with the ladies, but yeah, just, you know. You might be in town. And then the guys are like, you know, so these Nazi guys are, you know, like, he's seemingly on their side and they're, you know, muttering Nazi things. Um, but what, what struck me about this scene is eventually he's like, okay, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go do what you said. I'm going to get out of here. And then he makes, kicks up a fuss, gets kicked out by the proprietor because the Nazis play along and say, yeah, he's bothering us. We don't want to buy books. This is a library tavern. We can get these newspaper scrolls for free, presumably. And so... I mean, think about, like, it was a very, like, loud, reckless scene. I mean, if you're doing spycraft, that just seemed like a bad idea. 
Because you know all those people who are hanging out in a library tavern are going to be very disturbed by that and probably remember him. <laughs> so he's blown his cover in a way. <laughs> and we're not two minutes into this. And of course, then his next move is to go literally right across the street to where a doctor lives. A Dr. Topol, I believe. Yeah. Dr. Tofel. Tobel. Tobel. <laughs> he's very important, Kevin. Get it right. Yeah. This doctor has invented some kind of a bomb site that will be crucial in the uh, administration of the war. And Holmes wants to get this guy out of Switzerland and over to England. But how can he do it? Because he looks out the window and all these people from the bar who have been all stirred up by this bookseller incident are out there just loitering in the street. And the Nazis who he sicked on this guy are also there. So, oops. <laughs> Like, maybe he could have said something like, hey, I'll do it in two hours. <laughs> but no. But let, let's give the man his due. He he did hatch a scheme because Dr. Tobel had two servants who coincidentally vaguely resembled the doctor and Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes by way of Einstein. Right. So he had uh, the servants dress up as Holmes in disguise and the doctor, and then he sends them off on their way presumably to their deaths. To their deaths. They're, they died in Nazi Germany. Make no mistake, folks. We never see them again. This was a suicide mission. R.I.P. First of many deaths in the course of this picture. <laughs> Our leading characters makes all sorts of decisions that result in the deaths of innocents. This is the first. So they go off, and while they're being followed by their killers... <laughs> Holmes and uh, Dr. Tobel sneak out and get to a plane which is flown by some uh, British lady who flies them to London. And at this point, you're probably wondering, <laughs> where's Watson? Why? Why? Where's the Nigel Bruce spice that we're lacking in this bland opening? We, we just got a minute or two before he pops up. Fair. When we get to London... There was a, a shot of Holmes walking past rubble of London, presumably from the bombs that have been littered there by Nazi Germany, not even using this total bomb site. It's a very it's an effective scene and it's sort of a subtle reminder of the stakes here. And I'm sure that would would have been stirring and, you know, something resonant with people who lived through the blitz. And it sort of puts Holmes on the level of People who lived through the Blitz and probably, you know, were affected by that. It, it, you know, it, it, it clarifies things and it kind of, it, it's pretty emotionally resonant for, for a very short scene. Even though it seems, in some ways, it seems emotionally counterintuitive to see, or jarring, to see Holmes, who I associate with Victorian London. He's in planes, he's driving cars, he's hanging out in London during the Blitz. That's kind of strange. But like Basil Rathbone is Sherlock Holmes for so many people. And it, it, it fits. It, 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 like if, I mean, he he's belongs to the ages, you know, to use the cliche. So if, if we're going to see him in 1940s England, this is what I expect to a certain extent. He's, he's, he's become a character that, as you said, sort of is fitted to whatever circumstance, you know, people can kind of come up with and he'll, He'll rise to that occasion in some in some sense. So you thought it worked? I thought it worked. I thought it was nice. And it, yeah, it was like, you know, there's also a kind of a quiet 
tension and sadness about the, you know, basically this country being uh, attacked over and over again, countless deaths. So, so there's a weird emotional resonance that kind of seeps through there. It's subtle, but it's definitely there. After this brief scene, uh, we go to Baker street where indeed our good friend, Nigel Bruce, Dr. Watson is there. How, how does the touching reunion between these two men occur? Yeah. <laughs> Watson's reaction here kind of reminds me of me in the morning. Basically, he's robed. His voice is garbled by sleep. He's holding a gun. He's pulling a gun on his best friend. And this intruder who, he, you know, this is this Dr. Tobel fellow. He doesn't recognize Holmes. He's yelling. He's calling the police. He's waking up Mrs. Hudson. He's just a disaster. From the first moment. And that's why we love him, folks. <laughs> he is the agent of fucking chaos that this series <laughs> needs. To to the you know, the sophistication and the subtlety of Basil Rathbone. <laughs> A quintessential Sherlock Holmes for so many people. We need this bumbling doofus that everyone can relate to, just staggering in and fucking things up. Nearly killing Holmes and Doctor Tobel, like just pulling a gun. This is a this is a place of business where they have so many people from different walks of life coming in needing help, and his first instinct is to pull a gun. <laughs> I, I love Watson. <laughs> and, and let's stress, Basil Rathbone is still in disguise in his Einstein disguise, but it's a ridiculous it's disguise. Him. And also, he's like a tall, skinny guy. Like you could figure out who's this tall, skinny guy in lots of. You know, weird hair and like facial hair that I've never seen before. Like you can kind of assume it's your roommate. And Mrs. Hudson doesn't seem to have any trouble recognizing yeah, Holmes because he speaks, and she's like, "Oh, that's Holmes." Maybe for people who aren't necessarily super familiar with the characters, we were talking a bit about how Holmes belongs to the ages. Um, how does Doctor Watson sort of differ adaptation to adaptation, and maybe how does this Nigel Bruce take stand out, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> I think in the original stories, Watson is probably of normal intelligence. Maybe more than normal, I would say. He finished medical school. He's a doctor. He's an ex-soldier. He's highly competent. He's not as bright as Sherlock Holmes. Who is? He's more of a conventional thinker, but he's an intelligent person. And he's an intelligent man, a resourceful man, a capable man, a very brave man. He's an ally you'd want to have next to you in a fight. Somebody you could depend on. Nigel Bruce, as we will see in the coming minutes, <laughs> is not. Uh, and in fact, after he, after the landlady recognizes Sherlock Holmes, uh, his Watson. Well, well, why do we love Nigel Bruce, though? Because he's a buffoon? Yes. <laughs> so after he recognizes Holmes, and he learns Holmes has just gotten back from this highly dangerous mission... He starts peppering Holmes with the most inane questions imaginable. <laughs> including, including, why didn't Holmes bring his quote-unquote fiddle on a dangerous mission to Switzerland to retrieve this important scientist? <laughs> and also just complaining in general about the whole thing. I think everyone has Nigel Bruce's Dr. Watson moments in life. You know what I mean? Where you're just not at your best and things kind of get out of hand. But <laughs> in this case, there's pretty intense consequences. 
Yes, and and oh, but then Holmes is kind of an enabler because Holmes decides, you know who I want? This guy, this guy in a robe who pulled a gun on me and my new friend, and uh, is now just kind of babbling and kind of all put out. I'm going to leave him in charge of this situation. Yes, I've just risked my life to bring this man from Switzerland. The Nazis want him. Very risky situation. I'm going to go out and I'm going to take a powder. Watson, you drug you drug the guy <laughs> and stand guard. Give Dr. Tobel a sedative. Yeah, because that makes sense. Drug the guy and, and, and stand guard. And also, all I'm going to do is go tell some army intelligence, presumably, people that I have this guy. Something that could be easily done via a trusted messenger, say a Baker Street Irregular. Or per- maybe that's your job for Watson. Or maybe that's your job for Watson, frankly. I think Watson could handle that. Hey, I don't want the kids to get hurt. If something happens, you have a gun. You know how to use it. Please go to the Army Intelligence. Watson was in the Army. He knows these people, presumably. He can go do it. He'll have fun. He'll get to see some people schmooze. That's what he loves. Just let him do that. Make him feel important. And and Or just call them. Just ring the friggin' telephone. Yes, there are many options here. Or have a policeman do it. I'm sorry. There's just, I want to stress, there's so many options here other than what Sherlock actually ends up doing. Then Watson apparently can't even administer the sedative correctly because he says, this sedative, Dr. Tobel, it is so strong, there is a chance you will fall asleep even before you finish taking off your trousers. It all sounded kind of vaguely sexual. (laughs) But, But we know Nigel Bruce didn't mean it that way. And... The sedative seems to have no effect whatsoever on the doctor. Dr. Watson, on the other hand, sits down outside the bedroom door, promptly falls into a deep sleep. (laughs) Because what else could happen? And if you're not familiar with the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce series of Sherlock Holmes film, this always happened. If you say zig, Watson says, how far can I zag? (laughs) It never works out to trust this guy. So so why does Holmes trust him? Here's my theory. I think that Sherlock, being the genius he is, just gets so freaking bored with life that he has invited this stooge into his life just to mess things up and cause chaos, just to keep him sharp just to keep himself going because otherwise it's just too dull and he he can't stand it so watson fulfills some sick fix for him even when national security is on the line that that's the only thing that makes any sense whatsoever so watson's in a deep sleep dr tobel sneaks out uh he makes a phone call and then he Meanwhile, Sherlock's busy talking to Army Intelligence, being like, Tobel, got him, don't worry. And that's how he sounds. Tobel, got him, don't worry about him. And they say, hey, 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 Holmes, why don't we give you some special man from Scotland Yard, maybe some military guys, to protect Dr. Tobel. And meanwhile, Dr. Tobel is on his way out to make a booty call. Yeah, basically, just going to get laid. I mean, and then that whole (laughs) scene with the... I mean, I don't understand why at this point... The army intelligence people don't just get involved and say, you know what? Thanks, Sherlock. You did what you're good at. But at this point, 
we know the plot is about to get started <laughs> and we better step in to prevent that from happening because we know how things go with you because your friend writes about all your adventures in the newspaper. <sighs> Anyways. So the doctor. he The doctor Tobel. Dr. Tobel gets laid, presumably. And then he sits at a desk. Wait, would you sneak out to, would you, if you were a scientist, would you sneak out of Sherlock Holmes's house to come see me? If, if it, even if it was going to end badly and you were going to lose World War II as a result? Yes. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a dumbass. <laughs> you're very attractive. Oh, stop. Jesus. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> You're quite the dish. Oh, stop. So, so I'm sympathizing with Dr. Tobel. No. I'm on the same page just with men, Dr. Tobel. Men don't get to do any men don't get to do wars anymore because of shit like this. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Unprofessional. And and Dr. Tobel doesn't even have the decency to look embarrassed about all this. Anyway. I, I don't blame him. So often after men have had their pleasures, sometimes they're kind of relaxed, not thinking really clearly. And so Dr. Tobel gets this idea. I'm going to write a message to Sherlock Holmes, the man whose apartment I just left. I'm going to write it in code. It's going to be drawings of dancing. Well, why, why is he writing this? At this point, it's not clear. Okay. At this point, it's not clear uh, within the universe of the movie. In the real world production, uh, they had a deal where the movies had to be based on stories, even if it was loosely based on a story. And there was a, an old story where there was a code involving dancing men. The Adventures of the Dan- the Adventure of the Dancing Men. So they took that code from that story and then claimed this this movie is based on that story. It's not. Wait, really? Was this like a copyright thing? They had some sort of deal where they could do, I believe, three movies a year. Two of the movies had to be adaptations. The third movie could be completely original. May I ask why this rule? What was what was this rule intended to prevent or do? I don't. I I couldn't <laughs> tell you that. And especially since the adaptations were allowed to be very loose. Right. And this one, literally, all they took was this ridiculous code. So he he just left this man's uh, apartment. He writes a secret message to him. And he says to his lady love, if anything happens to me, give this message to the man whose apartment I just left and whose apartment I am just about to return to. Give it to the man who I could very easily deliver this in person to myself. And she says, sure, that makes sense. And then the doctor walks outside and immediately gets attacked. (laughs) Yep, um, he... Gets clobbered in the head by a bad guy, calls for help, and then, you know, just in case you were worried that things were getting too suspenseful, he gets immediately rescued by a London Bobby. And I thought at first, ooh, the twist is coming. That's not a real Bobby. But it was a real it Bobby. It was a real Bobby. Yeah, so basically <laughs> this whole attack scene was pretty extraneous. So basically we could have either started the movie around here or even maybe had the Zuri, you know the, the the Switzerland scene in the beginning and then skipped ahead to somewhere around here this was all totally for the most part extraneous you know, maybe in the real world the actor had to demand that if I'm going to be in this movie I insist 
that I have to wear a really unattractive bandage in my hair throughout the whole picture. <laughs> uh, oh, and so, anyway, so now so, the, the fallout, though, is hitting 22B Baker Street. <laughs> Here's what y'all really want to know. We want to know the Nigel Bruce's Watson. What's going to happen? So Holmes comes back from gloating to the Army intelligence people that he doesn't need any help to take care of Dr. Tobel, and he finds his roommate and best friend, Asleep at the wheel, or in this case, asleep at the armchair in front of the fireplace. And he's freaking out. He's, you can tell he's mad as hell. I've seen, I've seen other movies in this series, and in other cases where Watson has a big screw-up, Holmes almost reacts like, like, I knew this was going to happen, it's on me. <laughs> but in this case, you can tell uh, Holmes is actually pretty freaked out, and he's yelling, and he's grabbing Watson by the collar. Where is he? And Watson's like, it's impossible that he could have gotten out. I only fell asleep a second in. And uh, so it's a, it's a pretty, you know, he's pretty pissed off. And that's kind of interesting to see. <laughs> but then thank goodness, Dr. Tobel comes back. Yeah. All in one piece, except for the unattractive bandage. It's almost like none of this <laughs> needed to be in the story. <laughs> that, that all of this could have been left on the cutting room floor. Because it's like, it gives you this whole thing, like, set up, okay, Watson's going to fuck up and he's going to have to, like, prove himself to Holmes again. Or Holmes is gonna have to, you know, reassess their, you know, like, like there's gonna be emotional stakes. But nope, don't worry about all. It's that. all immediately forgotten. Yeah, I think it's kind of worth it though for the scene that follows where Holmes set Holmes sets Doctor Tobo down on the couch and says, "Hey, I know what you've been up to. You've been hanging out with a blonde lady who has full lips, and you got real close to her, didn't you? Didn't you? <laughs> Tell us all about it." <laughs> Just invading this guy's private life. Yeah, and then... Uh, and then Watson said, well, how could you possibly know, Holmes, like the color of her hair? And then Holmes says, well, you know, look at this. He has uh, one of her hairs on him. What a master of deduction. And uh, uh, Tobel describes his attack, talks about long fingers around his throat like steel and an odor... <laughs> emanating from the attacker which sounds kind of interesting but <laughs> the flatulent <laughs> flailer is it struck again <laughs> but in no it, it smelled like chloroform or something but yeah you know that's pretty much the end of this opening saga then we cut to the next day where this bomb site is being tested through the use of stock footage <laughs> In a place that does not look like England. <laughs> Looks like a desert, frankly. But they want to, um, you know, basically the the British Army Intelligence and Scotland Yard still want to guard Tobel, even though they already have the bomb. Site. Bomb site. But, uh, you know, they probably just care about him as a person. Um, and then basically it cuts to a scene in a big fancy office where a bunch of Old men are harumphing happily about how well the bomb site test went. But then, Dr. Tobel drops his own bombshell. <laughs> Love that. And it's explosive. Lay it on me, Anna. Anna. <laughs> Lay it on us, Anya. What the hell? <laughs> You're so delighted by your bomb puns, it blew up your own <laughs> mind. <laughs> uh, basically, one <laughs> First, talk about what fictional creature looks like it's on Dr. Tobel's head. <laughs> because of the extraneous attack, Dr. Tobel is wearing a bandage, and it looks like there is a tribble attached to his head. 
throughout a big chunk of this movie. It's very, very distracting. As if our heroes didn't have enough to deal with with all the <laughs> Nazis running around. It's Tribbles too. Um, so I'll lay it on you. I'll lay it on the Tobel thing because I have a, I have a, I have maybe a bit of a hot take on this. Um, so Tobel says, actually, guys, I'm not going to give you the straight up plans for my bombsite device. I'm the only one who should know all of these things. And everyone's upset because that's sort of not what they sent out Sherlock to get him for. They were thinking they were going to get the plans. And he's like, and then they're like, okay, well, frankly, he's not even a British citizen, so he doesn't owe us this and blah, blah, blah. But basically his plan, it turns out later, is to divide up the pieces of the bomb site into four kind of phases and separate the, give them to diff- four different, you know, scientists that he trusts, and they're each going to oversee production of one of the parts, and then he'll be the one to, like, kind of facilitate putting them all together. And his feeling is that that would, you know, be the safest thing. And the, and the army doesn't agree because that's going to put a huge target on his back. What's your unvarnished take on this? Okay. I mean, my feeling is... If all the scientists had operated this way, you know, on the Allied side after World War II, we might not have, like, the massive nuclear stockpile that we ended up with today, and maybe life would be a little less scary. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying this is a realistic thing. I'm, not, I'm just saying, in my heart, I think to be too mad about, about Tobel's decision would be to buy into some military-industrial complex bullshit. Frankly, I would not want the British army to have this godlike power without any strings attached. Obviously, I think Tobel wants them to beat the Nazis, and he's going to help them do that. But he's not going to just give them something that they can then use no, no matter what the time, no matter what the place, no matter how they want. So, Can I give my unvarnished yeah, take Yeah, give on me this your whole- unvarnished take. <laughs> go, let's go. <laughs> I think it's really stupid because, first of all, if only four people or five people know how to construct this bomb site, which we are told could change the course of the war, that means these five people are going to have a huge target on them and their lives will be in constant danger. And so basically he is dooming some of those scientists that he's trusting to death. And I don't even think they realize that. So let me state something. You are not engaging with the principle of the thing. You are engaging in how it was implemented. I agree with you that this was implemented in a really careless and heinous fashion. And honestly, just frankly seemed off the cuff. Everybody involved in this should have received massive protection. And frankly, gone into hiding at some military base. This should not have been done willy-nilly in different like scientist workshops around London. But... The principle of the thing, I think, is good. And it's also stupid because if you want, if this can change the course of the war, I think it would be helpful to have mass production. And if only five guys... (laughs) Burgers and fries. (laughs) If only five guys are making it, how how many can they turn out? It's not going to make that much of a difference. The guy they talked to said he could do as many as they wanted. So I don't think mass production in this universe is going to be a problem, frankly. How, how much do you think one guy can build? I and don't know. Mind, he this, this... said he could do it. <laughs> so obviously enough. 
this guy's also running a full-time business. Isn't he like a clockmaker or well, something? Well, I'm sure that I'm sure he would I'm sure a military contract would probably float his boat for the rest of the war, so he's probably going to dump all the clocks and do this. He said he could do it. He said he could do it. The British army people did not object cuz they were concerned about mass quantity issues and logistical issues. They were concerned because they wanted the information. They wanted that technology. I'm, I'm telling you my concerns, and there are logistical issues where I'd want these things to be made also at several different locations around the country so they could be easily shipped to areas in where combat is occurring, and also I'd want them in different parts of the country so that if the Germans bomb a particular factory or a particular location, it would not upset the flow of manufacture. This is one of the reasons I feel this decision was boneheaded, and anyone who says otherwise is a fool. You are an oaf if you think that the British army is to be trusted. <laughs> and you support Big Brother and the military-industrial complex, sir. That's all I have to say to you. Have, have fun drinking your Kool-Aid, sheeple. Good lord. This movie's tearing us apart. <laughs> the secret weapon is divisiveness. Yeah, so I agree, though. And, uh, so can, can we talk about mm -hmm. the, the, the rigorous screening process that Tobel used to pick out these scientists that he trusts with this big, this big secrets? None of them betrayed him. One of them, he, he said, well, you know, you know why I trust you, sir? You're Swiss. <laughs> You're from Switzerland. When, so is, when has that been a reason to trust somebody? You can help hide my ill-gotten financial gains. <laughs> so I would also be concerned if someone if, if he's picking people on his own. You are you are questioning the implementation and execution of his plan, not the principle. I'm questioning it's just dumb. You're, and speaking of dumb. You know what? We have a nuclear-laden war world that, that could descend into warfare and leave us in some sort of canticle for Leibowitz bullshit at any moment. That doesn't if if maybe people had thought about it or or had some principles, maybe we wouldn't be in that position. So you're telling me you'd feel safer if the if instead of uh, a government having the secret of how to build an A bomb that secret was held by a random clockmaker down the street. He doesn't have the whole secret. He has part of the secret. <laughs> and also, he's Swiss. And honestly, so what harm yeah, could he do? Well, you know what? I'm sure he seemed like a good guy, so I think it's fine. He doesn't have the whole secret. Remember, they said that that Swiss guy was the only <laughs> one other than Tobel who could put all the pieces together because he was just so darn clever. Yeah. Uh, well, it worked out. For him. I'm just saying. Obviously, they needed to protect all those men, and they didn't. That was that was dumb on everybody's part, including Tobles and including Scotland Yard, who it's later revealed just went away after he asked them to. <laughs> oh, boy, better give him a space. I think it was a dumb decision. And speaking of dumb decisions, another dumb decision is what could have been a very exciting sequence in the movie. We, we saw a boneheaded attack that led nowhere. Tobel is captured by nefarious forces. This happens off screen. <laughs> and, they all, and Holmes and Watson are only informed about it via phone call. Somebody calls him up and Holmes is like, oh no. <laughs> Some idiot hits him on the head. 
and immediately flees. That we get to see. Yeah, we get to see that hot action. But but the the central kind of inciting point of the actual mystery of where's Tobin and how can we get him back is we don't need to see that. So a lot it, the movies these movies often have those kind of odd choices where like why are we seeing this and not that? But that's that's for another day. So so Holmes says, well, maybe he's just up to his old tricks. Maybe he wants to get laid again. Let's look at the phone call he made from my home that day before he went to, to for, on his booty call and trace it. And then we'll go talk to his lady love. His latest Tinder hookups. <laughs> so they do that and they go and they talk to her. And how does that go? I, yeah, she she basically is just dumber than a sack of potatoes because she basically um, says, I don't know how... Uh, she, so she goes to give the letter that Tobin left... Uh, that Tobel left her um, to Holmes and, and he opens it and it's something like, ha ha, I got Tobel. And it's not the actual Tobel letter that, you know, this guy gave her. And she's all like, I don't know how this could have happened. And Holmes is like, well, did, did you have any callers here? Did anybody come in other than you? No, definitely not. Just just a really shifty character who moved like a pillar of smoke. and Had heavy lidded eyes. And whispered dark things into my ear about what would happen to my love. And then kicked my dog on the way out. <laughs> oh! So who could that possibly be? Couldn't have been Professor Moriarty. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He did used, a chill could just go up your spine? He used the old... Turn off your lights in the basement, ruse. <laughs> Holmes knows it's a pretty situa- a pretty severe situation at that point. So in a situation like that, all you can do is do something racially insensitive. Yeah, you got to do brown face because that's what Holmes immediately does. He decides to disguise uh, as an as an Indian sailor, um, and uh, dons brown face in order to do that. At first, I was thinking maybe he's just going for like a tan, sea weathered. Sailor look. But nope, he was being completely racist. It's a horrible scene. It adds nothing. Not that racism ever adds anything, but it's it's pretty bad. And it's like, good lord. This was this was only a few decades ago. And so then he starts going to sailor bars where people are singing and playing horrible songs, such as Oi oi up she rises, oi oi up she rises for five hours. <laughs> Oh, and also he's doing a fake Kaiser Soze limp this whole time. And there's this montage of him limping around town, and you hear a different variety of bad songs playing in the background, suggesting he's going to all of these bars. He's hoping to run in, into somebody who will uh, take him somewhere where he would be somehow drawn, come to the attention of Moriarty. And that ends up happening when he runs into a peg-legged little sailor named... What's that guy's name? Peg-legged. <laughs> Yeah, and they and Pegleg gives them the deets. Pegleg says, "Yo, we got to go to Jed Brady's carpenter shop. That's the most happening bad guy hangout in town. It's run by an insane shouting man. We're gonna have fun there." And he goes to this insane shouting man, and he asks about the whereabouts of a particular person whose name I don't even remember. And uh, Mister Brady said, "Well, that fellow's in Davy Jones' locker. While well, he's deader than a blinking mackerel." You know how sailors talk. <laughs> And then he just starts lying on his cot and cackling maniacally. It's oddly disturbing yet ridiculous. I think you loved that guy, so don't don't act like you didn't. You loved that guy. 
You were delighted by that character. Don't even deny I was delighted it. by it, but it was kind of disturbing. You wish to emulate that man. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lucky lady. I know. So, um, yeah, then... Uh, then That's when Professor Moriarty yeah, makes his entrance. Makes his debut. And he commends Holmes on his racist outfit, uh, saying that he managed to trick his dipshit sailor employees. Um, and it's very, very jarring hearing Holmes say good evening, Professor Moriarty, in his fancy little accent in this horrible brown face racist makeup. It's just it's it's very it's a low point for this franchise, honestly. Uh, uh, one of many low points for this franchise, frankly, but it's pretty bad. And then Moriarty reveals that, yes, he is uh, wanting to help the Nazis get this bomb site, But primarily he's doing this not because he hates his country. Just because he wants to kind of fuck with Holmes. And there's like weird stuff where like Moriarty's clucking his tongue in a weird manner. And then he opens a big chest to uh, show Holmes his collection of Home Depot <laughs> tools. But underneath those Home Depot tools, there is an empty space in the chest. where They're going to bound and tie Holmes, stuff him in there, take him out to sea, and then dump this uh, container in the water so Holmes will drown. Because, you know, you couldn't just shoot him in this isolated carpenter shop on a sketchy part of town and dump his body somewhere. Because that would be boring. And Moriarty wants to be creative. You know, Mor- Moriarty spouts some dumb, cliched line about, you know, Sherlock Holmes being a brilliant man. Too bad he was honest. Like, just feels like it could come from, like, any movie ever. Um and so, but you know, so it looks rough for 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 Holmes at some point. So at this point, a couple of the Moriarty's henchmen carry this uh, container outside, where luckily for Holmes, Inspector Lestrade and, and and Doctor Watson just happen to be there, and they stop these guys. They open up this trunk. We want to see in there. They open up the trunk, and they just see the Home Depot stuff on top. And Lestrade says, oh, everything's okay. These are just a couple of simple seafaring men. And he says this right in front of the simple seafaring like, men. Like, hey! <laughs> We're right here! And so the, the simple seafaring men close the uh, trunk and start heading off. And then they say, and Watson and Lestrade say, well, wait a minute. And, and they Those say, guys are as weak as kittens. They're struggling through the alley with this, like, crate. Oh, maybe something. Then they go running over and they drop the crate and then they get Holmes out of it. And honestly, just really setting up Moriarty as a very unintimidating villain here because, I mean, you're like entrusting the demise of your most hated rival of all time to two salty dogs. What the fuck are you doing? (laughs) You know, these these two sea dogs are just not your top guys. This is not your Moran you know, uh, who's his top henchman in the book series. You know, deep cut. Deep cut. I, th- I I think I smell a Holmes fan. Sebastian Moran, the sniper. You know, and like, honestly, where's the enjoyment? Hey, Kevin, if I'm your big nemesis and I finally got you where I want you, I'm going to savor it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to take my time and think of something creative. But instead. that's just because you're a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> But so's Moriarty. And instead he's all like, oh, I better just, you know, have my dipshit friends throw you off their boat. It's just boring. It's just, and, like, he's just not intimidating in this movie at all. You never feel like, oh, Jesus, Holmes going to be able to defeat Moriarty? Like, 
I mean, I guess that's most movies, but still. <laughs> He's especially unintimidating. So at this point, uh, Holmes goes back to the lady love's place and he says, wait a minute, this note that he left for me that was stolen, what about the piece of paper underneath? Is that still there? And they say, no, that's still there. And so then there's this this pseudo-scientific montage where, like, Holmes shines lights on it and takes pictures of it and looks at it through microscopes and stuff. And he's able to recover the code from the piece of paper underneath it. And then... And it, it, was, says, it says, we are a small foreign faction. <laughs> too dark. <laughs> that might be too dark. <laughs> Sorry. That was good. I apologize. There's a very, very surreal moment, more surreal than anything in a Fellini film, where suddenly when Watson is looking at this code and then he starts calmly explaining how one decodes messages. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty much What the the hell was that? I don't know. It felt like it went on for five hours. (laughs) This dullard suddenly... (laughs) He becomes like the smart guy in the room somehow, but like it's, he's explaining something so stupid and basic. It really is surreal. It's a really great surrealist moment. And it's like dimly lit and everyone, <laughs> no one looks like they're paying attention to what he's saying. It's almost like if that's what you got a glimpse into Watson's mind of how he thinks he sounds. He thinks he's this reasoned, sophisticated doctor and that's what's coming out of his mouth. But what's actually coming out of his mouth is like, oh, cricket, I used to play with Stinky and the lads. <laughs> And, like, it's, you know, he's he's a very silly person. So then Holmes says, well, okay, well, go ahead and decode it. Well, you know, you know, you know, Kevin, though. I mean, we know from other Nigel Bruce, Basil Rathbone films that if anything, if Watson's explaining or stating everything, comeuppance is on its way. He's about to be, <laughs> he's about to be hoisted by, by his, his own, own petard. petard. And so he decodes the message, and he decodes it basically like it's an optometrist eye chart. It's just a bunch of random letters. And then Holmes says, well, maybe I'll take a look at it. (laughs) Once again, you've disappointed me. Why am I? I don't know why I still feel surprised over this. So it turns out there's actually three names. There's four names written in code. And the codes are slightly different, and they decipher the first three. They can't quite decipher, decipher decipher the fourth. And these are the names of the scientists whose lives Tobol has endangered by his foolish decision to have them manufacture individual parts of the bomb site. You're a you're a hawk, aren't you? And then we cut Military to a, industrial we then complex cut to a guy. scene where Tobol is being brutally tortured by Moriarty to try to get the fourth name. It's, it's a very jarring scene because we've just seen this kind of weird, weird, dimly lit code situation with Watson spouting off all these little factoids that you could read in a kid's book about how to code <laughs> stuff. You could read it like the, one of those top secret subscription books. And then we go to brutal torture, people holding Tobel's arms and legs down on a table. He's being beaten, he's screaming. All his interrogators are all like, chanting i mean like i mean it, it, like you want to help this guy he sounds terrified it's, it's awful it's horrifying <laughs> and it only lasts a second and it's just very jarring later on we see um holmes meeting with some of the 
Scotland Yard detectives and the Army intelligence folks. He seems very defeated and sad, saying he'd give his life to decode the message because he knows how critical it is. That felt kind of like a real scene for me where it's like <laughs> he knows at this point how badly things have gone wrong. And like he he's it, the mis- the mystery for him at this point seems more, you know, real than in other films where it, it seems more of an academic matter. I thought I thought that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and but basically that doesn't disguise the fact that this film, or at least a large portion of it, feels like a series of scenes in which a group of adults are standing around a dimly lit, shadowy room, basically reciting the alphabet. A, <laughs> O, Q, U. It's like, what is going on? So, it's pretty silly. It's pretty silly. And then uh, abruptly, I don't even I don't even recall what the insight was, but they get the insight and they figure out. Oh, Watson gives it to them. He said, "Oh, I used to do things and turn them all around." And and this is how always Holmes' revelation comes about. Watson will say something dumb like, "Yeah, topsy turvy," and then Holmes will be like, "By Jove, like you know, we need to turn the code around, and that'll fix it." Oh, and we should mention that the first three names they got. Of the scientists, and they found those scientists, all three of them were dead. Brutally right. murdered. Actually, they went to the home of the first scientist and found him dead. And Watson said, well, We better hurry up and go to the home of the second and third scientist. And Holmes said, Eh, it's not worth it. They're probably dead too. <laughs> <laughs> Watson, stop kidding yourself. So they're really anxious to get this fourth name. Maybe they can still save this person. And because of uh, Watson's insight, they figure it out. By an amazing coincidence, this fourth guy. Happens to be a quiet, kind of a thin guy who uh, vaguely physically resembles uh, Holmes. So that no spoilers about what's going to (laughs) happen. Okay, so what happens? Well, um, at the same time, Moriarty figures out the code, too, because he, like, leaves it on his, like, glass coffee table upside down. And he's like, oh, by Jove, I got it, too. So he they've been torturing Tobol. They didn't get it out of him, but now they have the last name. So he sent his, his henchmen around to this guy's workshop. And they find a uh, tall, thin, quiet guy who doesn't talk in this scene with big glasses and a face shield. And he's like, oh, and they, you know, they take him. So, you know, no, no, don't want to, don't want to ruin anything, but we don't know where Holmes is at this point. And anyway, so then they take him to their lair and immediately Moriarty realizes that this scientist is not a scientist. It's in fact his old rival, Sherlock Holmes. And of course, Holmes, being a brilliant tactician, figured out a way to ensure that he would be saved. He had Watson rig a can of paint. (laughs) (laughs) Already sounds like a great idea. He had Watson rig rig a can of paint and attach it to the car they expected Moriarty's men to use after they kidnapped the disguised Holmes. And the can of paint would periodically spill some of the paint so this would lead a trail so they could follow the paint to glow in the dark paint that ends up looking like some scooby-doo ass shit and there's like a little bit of a cliffhanger and a little bit of trouble there because at one point these doofuses like follow the wrong paint (laughs) this is what they do for all kidnapped victims in england (laughs) because like somebody drove a car through some of the paint when it was still wet and so the paint went off in a different direction who could have predicted that that would have happened yes yeah. Meanwhile, 
Holmes's life is in danger. And, and he, in a way that very much disturbed me on this viewing. So Because Holmes, want, Moriarty say, oh, why don't I kill you in some quick way? And uh, Holmes doesn't want to die in a quick way because he wants to give his friends time to follow the paint. He knows who he's dealing with. It's going to take these doofuses a while to follow the paint. And so he uh, steers Moriarty towards a particularly slow and gruesome way of murder. What a horrible like psychological toll that must be to be in deep, deep danger with Moriarty here. And the only people who are coming to save you, you know for a fact, are just the biggest dipshits in life. And who have disappointed you on so many occasions. Like, is, is Holmes almost like suicidal at some point where he's doing this stuff and tasking Lestrade and, and Watson and the gang with saving him? I mean, is that too harsh? <laughs> it's very self-destructive. You'd think there must be other people on the, the forest at Scotland Yard could be more competent. I guess if I'm, if my life is in the balance and I know that Watson, Nigel Bruce is Watson, you know, canonical Watson, I feel good. I feel good about my position. If it's Nigel Bruce's Watson, I mean, he's, I'm surprised this scene didn't have him getting the paint can stuck to his foot and then stumbling into a garbage can and, like, rolling down a hill. I, yeah, I wouldn't even trust him to rig the can of paint. Or maybe he'd rig the can of paint and put, like, water in it or something. <laughs> I love Watson. <laughs> Watson's like the guy who can't do anything right and just like just constant like wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Should we talk about the way that uh, Holmes convinced Moriarty to kill him? Yeah, this is gruesome. He's like trying to like, oh, my friends are dipshits, so I better like co- convince them to do something really horrifying to me. Um, why don't you talk about it? Because it made <laughs> trigger warning. If you don't like needles and stuff, this might get pretty rough. So uh, it was rough for me. I was literally like yelling and screaming. I just felt queasy all over thinking about it. So the idea was that if you lose a certain amount of blood, you're going to die. So he, <laughs> they they secured Holmes to a bed and uh, put some needles in him and slowly started draining out his blood so that he would... <laughs> <laughs> the life's blood would go out of him a drop or two at a time. And Holmes would be cognizant of this happening every step of the way. Oh, my God. I'm going to vomit. I'm like, <laughs> I hate that so much. I mean, is, am I overreacting? Like, that? Is that really horrifying to you? I just thought it was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, I, 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 really, I really hate needles so much. And that really freaked me out. It, I think it, that's kind of creative. I think the way we've described it makes it sound creepy. In the movie, as it's executed, it's just kind of dumb. Okay, yeah, that's me. But, I mean, isn't that just kind of the movie? Because, <laughs> like, like Holmes kind of gives Moriarty the idea, and then Moriarty says, oh, you slipped by giving me that idea. Yeah, he bray now, rabbits him. So now I'm going to do it. And then, like, Moriarty's standing over uh, Holmes saying, Floating. oh, yeah, yeah you're, you're dying now real slow. Another four hours. <laughs> But then he says, oh, I'm running out of time, so I better just shoot you dead. And, of course, that's when uh, the good guys finally burst in. And, um, yeah, one thing I noticed, weirdly enough, in this scene was that Lestrade's accent seemed to be all over the place when he was planning out how they break into (laughs) So that's not very, that's probably the least weird thing about this movie. (sighs) But I wanted to note it. 
And then, um, hilariously enough, Lestrade comes in and, you know, tells Moriarty that he's done for. And then Moriarty says, no, you're done for. And Lestrade's like, really? Like, <laughs> just love that. The witty repartee. The dialogue is just sizzling. It's like the Algonquin round table. Yeah, they, well, they're just like, and then they're just like this dumb shootout that is over in five seconds. And they like look out a window and people are near a boat. And then like you kind of think the boat went away. My, my thought was the boat drove away. So I'm like, how do they get Tobel? But then you see them dragging in Tobel and they're like, he's fine. And he's like totally limp and like lolling and doesn't say anything. And one of them shakes his hand and it's like, oh, geez. <laughs> I don't think he's doing so well. What do you think about the gunfight? I think a gunfight in a Sherlock Holmes story just seems really, really out of place. It just doesn't fit in with the Victorian vibe I associate with Holmes. What about the 1940s bullshit vibe? <laughs> it was just dumb. It was just dumb. I, I think a gunfight, you know, if you're just doing it as an adornment, is probably kind of lame. If it's a good gunfight, you know, if it's like well choreographed or something or it's kind of interesting, then I'll allow it. But and, Oh, that's so gracious of you. <laughs> I'll allow it. And and one problem, not only in the gunfight, but th in the entire battle of wits between Moriarty and Holmes, is that the actor playing Moriarty in this movie is not the least bit intimidating. Doesn't even seem all that bright. It's like maybe your cousin's uncle or, or something. Just... <laughs> your cousin's What cousin's uncle are you dissing right now? It, it just seems like just a regular guy. Is this who you match wits with in your old Thanksgivings? <laughs> Greenleaf family repartee. <laughs> I did not find him the least bit intimidating. And tell us how he met his end, which was not, again, a very intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, everybody runs outside to get Tobel. Holmes seems kind of woozy from his torture and then kind of is running around inside kind of slowly. And then he sort of runs into Moriarty at some point. And Moriarty tells him, like, listen. I'm going to go through that door. And if I go through that door and someone else follows me, that second party, the pursuer, if you will, is going to fall 60 feet through a trap door that's time to go off into the sewers below. And you're like, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> this is your house. I guess you'd have something like that, even though, like, wouldn't you be terrified every time you, like, went down the hallway to go to the bathroom that <laughs> it would, like, malfunction? <laughs> But anyways, so he says that, and then he promptly walks into the hallway and falls to his death. <laughs> <laughs> and then Watson's like, oh, by Jove, Holmes, what happened? And, and Holmes is like, looks like someone got there first and left the trap door open, <laughs> which we did not see him do as far as I know. And then... <laughs> And, like, what if fucking Lestrade or, like, Watson had come <laughs> skipping in to tell home something and then took a wrong turn down the hallway? I would have died because I get lost in people's houses all the time. And I would be, I would have just been like, oh, well, I wonder if there's a kitchen down here. And been like, ah! <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs> and then uh, there's a shot of a bunch of uh, military planes overhead. And Oh, and, oh, I want to note. There was no wily e. coyote scream or anything going down, but it was still pretty embarrassing. It was pretty. Is a pretty humiliating way to go. <laughs> Honestly, if he wanted to humiliate Holmes, couldn't he have just dropped him down the, dropped him down the sewer chute? Yeah, that would have been embarrassing. Yeah, you're like human waste. I'm gonna put you down the sewer. You're just poop. <laughs> so 
So then there's these military planes flying overhead, and uh, Holmes gives a, a speech from uh, Shakespeare. Barf. This realm, this England. And I was like, boo, like, uh, we don't we don't need your Richard II nonsense here. So what's your final unvarnished take on Sherlock Holmes and the secret weapon? Well, listen, as a as somebody who enjoys World War II history, it was really interesting kind of seeing a classic character get sort of repurposed for basically a, a kind of a propaganda film. Is that fair to say that it's a propaganda film? It's, it's certainly a prop- propaganda film. Yeah, and it's it's in the service and I could kind of see if you're a if you're a, an English person who is you know, survive the blitz. Your country's been kind of like reduced to rubble in certain parts by this sort of horrifying, you know, Nazi force. You know, I can understand the kind of psychological comfort of seeing a film where you're one of, you know, England's beloved heroes comes out and is kind of protecting people and, and, and ensuring that you will win the war. So I think from a comfort food perspective, this is a this is a tasty dish. what it's really stupid it's a stupid film i love this film i love this film so much it's silly and it's just it's it's boring at points but the parts that are fun are fun to me i'm a strange old man in a young woman's body (laughs) lanny disagrees I got to side with Lanny. Uh, I, I was not a big fan of this picture. I didn't think the story made any sense. I thought the uh, writing was bad. I thought the production values were lackluster. I thought the plotting uh, was plotting. It didn't make a lot of sense. There wasn't really a lot there of value. So for you, the secret weapon was boredom? <laughs> I almost said that. For me, the secret weapon was... You said you enjoyed the history. Yeah, the secret weapon was history. The secret weapon were the friends we met along the way. <laughs> like Dr. Tobel and his two servants who died. <laughs> and those other four guys, or those three scientists who died. The other guy and uh, Pegleg, obviously. Oh, and the, and the homeless guy who Holmes bumped into, but then was actually friends with, who saved him. We didn't talk about him, but he was... One of those friends. And what about uh, the lady love? She was a good friend. She was a good friend. She even complimented Lestrade at the end. Yeah. She doesn't get a lot of those. I don't know. I'd say for me, this piece of World War II propaganda really cracked the code. <laughs> I know you thought it was a bomb, though. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks Thanks so so much much for listening. listening.